0: With Halloween just around the corner, it's natural to start thinking about the supernatural. While superheroes and characters from TV and movies are increasingly popular costumes, it's very often the classics that we turn to when choosing how to dress up for All Hallows' Eve. In the United States, which is still the most popular costume, though the number one choice in Florida, Michigan, and Virginia is a rabbit, for some reason, and in Rhode Island, people choose Hermione Granger the most, and in Wyoming, people opt to be a doctor. And yet, there are still plenty of vampires, zombies, and the like wandering the streets after dark, looking for sweets, alcohol, and entertainment, depending on how old they are. Vampire is still a very popular choice, and the idea of undead, blood-drinking fiends frightens some and titillates others. And some people even say that they are in fact, vampires. Vampires. That's what we'll look at in today's episode, Monster Monster Mash Mash. Vampires. Vampires. Don't forget you can subscribe to this podcast, and if you like what we do, donate via our Buy Me a Coffee page. Both actions are greatly appreciated.
1: You leave the world behind and enter a large chamber, filled with boxes and crates as far as the eye can see. Welcome to The Conspiracy Conspiracy Clearinghouse. The podcast that takes a rather skeptical look at conspiracies and mysteries. Each episode will examine various conspiracy theories, most of which are not true, a few of which might be a little bit true, and even a couple that turned out, in fact, to be true. is dead. dead
0: that is possibly the ultimate goth song by Bauhaus Though there are tales of spirits and demons who drink blood or life essence stretching all the way back to antiquity, the first person to make it into written records as a vampire was Jura Grando Alilovic, who lived in the inland village of Kringa on the Istrian peninsula in what is now Croatia, but in history had been part of the Venetian Empire, the Austrian Empire, and even part of Italy between the end of World War I and the end of World War II. Grando died after a very long illness back in 1656 when the area was under the flag of Venice. But then in 1672, 16 years after his death and burial, he supposedly rose from his grave and started attacking people. He'd knock on people's doors at night and then those people would become ill and shortly thereafterwards die. His widow claimed she'd seen his rotting corpse in her window, staring at her, and that sometimes he got inside the house and sexually assaulted her. A local priest tried hunting for the creature that was being called a strigon, an Istrian-Venetian word for sorcerer. The priest once claimed he saw it and kept it at bay with a crucifix. The local prefect, Miho Aradetic, hunted down the creature and tried to ram a hawthorn stick through its heart but he said the skin was like metal armor. The next night, Raditich got eight brave men from town, and they all went to the cemetery and dug up Grando's body, which was perfectly preserved. They said some prayers and then cut off its head. As the saw blade bit into the neck, the monster screamed and began to bleed profusely. Once the head was fully removed, the creature finally died and the attacks stopped. Stories of these strigon creatures would float around Croatia for centuries, though there were some locals who said actually Grando had been a thief who had faked his own death to avoid the law, but the local priest wrote it up as recounted here, and that account got into other documents, and thus we have the first recorded instance of a vampire. In the noughties in the 21st century, local entrepreneurs saw an opportunity to draw tourists to the tiny town of Kringa, today population 315, selling souvenirs like garlic-scented candles and opening a vampire-themed bar, offering drinks like the Vampire Soul, the Vampire Blade, and the Vampire Orgasm. Vampire tourism is alive and well in the small but cute town of Gringa in Istria. There was a massive scare all through Eastern Europe in the early 1700s with bodies being dug up and then staked through the heart because people thought that they were vampires. As I said, earlier cultures had some sort of blood-sucking humanoid spirit or demon in their legends, even as far back as Mesopotamia, but this modern idea of the vampire really comes out of the Slavic Balkans. In many Slavic lands, it was thought that a vampire was created if an animal jumped over a person's grave oddly the chinese also believed this russians thought they had been rebellious witches who refused to accept christ and were being punished by god whatever they are they almost certainly do not have souls or so says the church this is why many cultures thought that they do not cast a shadow and that mirrors did not reflect them the old classics of a crucifix holy water era rosary to help ward them off but so did garlic hawthorn and mustard seeds scattered on the roof of a house Also, apparently, vampires do not like spicy food. Speaking of food, in some places, it was thought you could get protection from a particular vampire that was haunting the area if you drank its blood or ate bread made with its blood. This would later morph into the idea of vampires creating new vampires by making their victims drink their own blood. In other places, it was thought that if you could find the vampire's grave and eat some of the dirt from atop it, it would protect you. This was certainly what people thought in the Serbian village of Medveda, which once stood where Trstenik is today, when a man the Austrians called Arnold Paola supposedly became a vampire and killed 16 people in the village in the early 1700s. Paola had been an infantry soldier who'd moved to the village, but word went round that he'd become infected with vampirism back in Kosovo, and he thought he'd cured himself by finding the Turkish vampire that was annoying him's grave, eating some of the dirt from on top of it, and smearing some of its blood on himself. Then, in late 1725, he fell from a hay wagon and broke his neck. Less than a month after he was buried, four people complained that he had shown up at their homes and hassled them and then those people died. Local officials opened his grave 10 days later, this is January 1726, only to see that his body was barely decomposed at all. Reports written of the examination said his veins were as full of blood as a living person. In fact, he had so much blood in him, it was leaking out of his eyes and nose and mouth and even his ears covering the inside of the coffin in a bloody smear. Also, his beard had grown back, said the report. Apparently, he'd been shaved before being buried. Well, they staked him through the heart to release all of that life-giving blood, which made him wake up and start screaming. They dragged the writhing monster out of the grave, cut off his head, and then set the body on fire. Then they did the same thing to the four people who had died, just to make sure. Whew! Boy, that was bad, but it could have been a lot worse. Thank goodness the authorities had responded so quickly, and then things calmed down for five years. However, starting right around Halloween 1731, people started dying, sometimes falling into something like a stupor for three days first, others suddenly dropping dead with no warning. By December 12th, 13 people had mysteriously died, and another four died in the next month, Most victims were good, God-fearing folk, but there were stories about a few of them that they'd maybe tried to protect themselves by smearing vampire blood on their bodies. But then some people said, no, if you did that and you were a woman, that would turn you into a vampire. Others tried to protect themselves by eating meat from a sheep killed by vampires. There were a lot of folk remedies. But people kept on dying just the same. The 18th victim was the daughter of an upstanding man who started screaming in the night, saying a boy who had died just a few weeks earlier had come into her room and told her he was a vampire and then tried to strangle her. They went to that boy's grave, dug him up, and found signs that he was, in fact, a vampire. People complained to the local Austrian military commander, a Herr Schneze, to do something about all this, so the call went out for some kind of an expert. When Dr. Glaza, who was stationed in the town of Parachin, heard about all this, he wondered if maybe it was some sort of infectious agent and worried about an epidemic, hurried to the village of Medveda, He poked around and concluded it was a case of malnutrition compounded by the, as he saw it, unhealthy Eastern Orthodox fasting that people in these parts engaged in around the Holy Holidays. The villagers insisted that, no, it was vampires, and if steps weren't taken, they would all abandon the village entirely. So Dr. Glazer dug up a few of the bodies and was shocked to see that some of those who had died earlier in the wave of deaths had not decomposed as much as he thought they should have, and a few even had blood in their mouths. However, the more recent deaths were in the expected states of decomposition. So, he, he really didn't think it was vampires, but aware of the growing agitation among the remaining populace, he recommended that the military commander Schnezer choose a few of the bodies to be designated as vampires, and then they could execute them in front of everybody. And maybe that would stop all the complaining. Schnezer was not really keen to do this, so he kicked the recommendation upstairs. And so, Johann Flukinger... A medical surgeon was dispatched to Medveda along with two other surgeons and two military officers. They also exhumed some bodies and found the most recent five decomposing normally, but the previous bodies not so much, just like Glaza had found. The skin seemed reddish instead of pale, the nails looked healthy, and the blood in their organs seemed fresh instead of coagulated. So they cut the heads off these bodies, burned all the rest of the remains, and then threw the ashes into the river. And so ended an offbeat tale in a small Serbian village. Except that Dr. Glaze's father, a doctor in Vienna, wrote it all up in a letter to a prominent journal who published it, and the story became something of a sensation. It combined in people's minds with tales around the same time period of other supposed vampires such as Petar Blagojevich, in the village of Kisilova in 1725 and 1726, and Sava Savanović, who had lived in a water mill near Bajnabasja and who would become the most famous vampire in all of Serbian history, dying in 1725. 1725. That was quite a year for Serbian vampire lore. Because the story had been published in the capital of the Austrian Empire, tales of vampires began to spread all over the place in Habsburg lands, reaching as far as Moravia and Bohemia in today's Czech Republic, where many, many bodies were dug up and beheaded or staked. 250 years later, another vampire panic would grip New England in the United States as people who were unaware of the effects of tuberculosis mistook it for the tales that had been passed down from the old country, wherever they had come from, and victims of the disease, known at the time merely as consumption, were exhumed and had their body parts burned to prevent them from rising again and claiming new victims. People like Mercy Brown of Rhode Island in 1892. Darknesses, Darknesses in, life. in life. 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 life Tales such as these almost certainly informed Irish writer Bram Stoker as well as conversations with a professor at the University of Budapest about the 15th century ruler of Wallachia, which is now part of Romania, Vlad Tepish III, also known as Vlad Draculia, or today as Vlad the Impaler. During his lifetime, Vlad's cruelty became so famous that scores of immensely popular books and long poems were written about his unspeakable acts. As such, it is difficult to say for sure which allegations are possibly true and which ones were simply dreamt up by imaginative writers. These written tales would essentially become the first bestsellers in Europe. For example, a donkey wouldn't stop braying after its master's death, so Vlad impaled the two monks charged with the animal's care to help them get to heaven. He did this by having long, sharpened wooden poles rammed through their mouths and out their anuses. He used to catch rats and cut them into small pieces and then nail those pieces to small bits of wood which he would keep in a collection. One day Turkish messengers came, but did not remove their turbans, which was not their custom. This offended Blad, so he drugged their drinks and then nailed the turbans to their heads with three spikes each. He would boil people in large cauldrons until they died. He would impale women who had recently given birth and were still suckling having the babies drink the milk until she died. He would then cut the woman's breasts off and have the baby's heads rammed into the cavities where the babies would suffocate. And he would burn alive anyone he thought was lazy and sometimes just poor people for having the audacity to be poor. He once burned a woman alive who had made a shirt for her husband that was too short. And the list goes on and on and on. Some called him a demented psychopath. Other people saw a kind of a method to his madness, since crime was way down in the lands he ruled, especially theft, which Vlad particularly despised. And so they nicknamed him, quote, evil-wise. Yet he also did a number of other things, and for various reasons not connected with his cruelty, he is considered a national hero of the country of Romania. Well, Stoker thought, what if I combined all of these 18th century tales of vampires in the Balkans and the more recent American freakout with the stories of this 15th century Vlad guy? I mean, that could be a real winner. His 1897 gothic horror novel Dracula was a hit playing on Victorian fears of disease of all kinds, as well as tapping into fears of immigrants. Remember, Dracula comes to England from abroad, after all. And many people in England were afraid of what they called reverse colonization, as all of the great unwashed non-English hordes came in to their country. Back in the day, Stoker knew it was going to be a hit and actually wrote an adaptation for the stage just before the book was published. This was incredibly popular and helped drive book sales. A Hungarian silent film made in 1921, Dracula Halala, meaning Dracula's Deaths, was the first filmed version of the book, followed by the 1922 German expressionist film Nosferatu, A Symphony of Horror by F.W. Murnau. Stoker's widow disliked the liberal adaptation and sued the production company, who then had to destroy all copies of the film. But fortunately for film buffs, they missed a few, and we can see it today. But of course, it is the Todd Browning film starring a Hungarian immigrant to America who went by the name Bela Lugosi as the title vamp. Instead of Dracula being this icky, misshaping, grotesque being, he's kind of, well sexy and very much in control. Released in February 1931, the movie was a massive hit, and then when James Whale's film version of Mary Shelley's 1818 novel Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus, starring English actor Boris Karloff, whose real name was William Henry Pratt, came out in November the same year, the age of movie monsters had truly begun. Dracula is big business in Romania, too. Today, there's an entire segment of cultural tourism known as Dracula Tourism, encompassing eight primary locations. There's Castelul Bran, or Bran Castle, where Dracula slash Vlad once lived, they say. Nearby, there's also a haunted house that's been built called the Castle of Horror. Poinari Fortress, which says, no, this is actually where Vlad slash Dracula lived, but it's really just a ruin south of Lake Vidaru. The village of Erefu, close to the ruins of Poinari, where Dracula legends are still told. The city of Saisora, which is the birthplace of Vlad the Impaler. Snagov Monastery, where Vlad is buried the old princely court or Palatul Kurtea Vece in the capital of Bucharest, the Transylvanian city of Brasov, where Vlad led raids against the Saxons, and Piatra Fontanelle, the village that Bram Stoker placed Dracula's castle in and which built a hotel called Castle Dracula in the 1970s, which looks like a giant castle. There was even a proposal for a Dracula theme park to be built, but it was rejected after languishing in bureaucrats' hands for six years. In fact, the Romanian government is not all too keen on this whole Dracula thing, preferring to highlight other aspects of their country. They have actually banned any Dracula theme parks from being built anywhere in Romania until 2026 at the earliest. Vampire Vampire Blues. blues. That's a song by Neil Young that uses vampires as a metaphor for the oil industry. All this is great for box office receipts and tourism, but you know, there's no such thing as a vampire. So what is really going on? As is so often the case, it's probably a combination of things. One idea is that sometimes people were buried before they'd actually died because the medical profession of the time was not good at recognizing some maladies. So maybe someone hears sounds from a grave and when they open the coffin, the body inside is not very decomposed since they really only recently died. There are scratch marks on the inside of the coffin and the person bloodied their nose, which then ran down into their mouth, trying to push the coffin lid up. The fact is, is that there were maladies and even genetic defects that caused people to fall into a sort of catatonic stupor that very much resembled death. So maybe that's one explanation for vampires. And then it could be just other illnesses like the bubonic plague, which causes blood to appear at the lips when the pneumonic form of it breaks down lung tissue. And you basically cough up bits of your lung. As mentioned before, tuberculosis can also cause people to wither away and cough up blood, and it was fairly contagious. All of these things, if you've decided that vampirism is the problem, can look very much like symptoms of that vampirism. Rabies in humans can cause a sensitivity to various things like light, especially sunlight, and garlic, and also disturb sleep patterns, so sufferers wake up in the night and tend to wander about. Also, wolves and bats are both carriers of rabies, which might explain some of those associations. And there used to be an old legend that said a person with rabies could not stand to look at themselves in a mirror. Rabies sufferers can also become manic, frothing blood from their mouths and even biting other people, spreading the virus. There's also a rare blood disorder discovered in 1985 called porphyria, Actually, it's a group of disorders of the liver, which can affect the nervous system or the skin, where blisters can appear when the afflicted is exposed to sunlight. It's actually first described all the way back in 370 BCE by the father of medicine himself, Hippocrates, and another effect of this disease is purple urine, which could easily be mistaken for blood. In fact, the name, porphyria, comes from the Greek word for purple. Hemoglobin, which is an iron-rich metalloprotein that delivers oxygen to red blood cells, comes out of proteins called hemoproteins, or just hem from the Greek, "haima," meaning blood. Sufferers of porphyria don't have enough of these, and yet somehow in the past many of them instinctively knew this and so they drank large amounts of blood in order to feel better. This is the notion of Canadian biochemist David Dolphin, who thought that perhaps drinking large amounts of fresh blood so that there was a whole bunch of it in the stomach that could be absorbed through the stomach walls would help someone who had porphyria. And he suggested that many of these old vampire tales were probably just people suffering from porphyria and trying to help themselves. Many of his colleagues thought, boy, that is quite a leap to make, and so he was rather ignored by the medical professionals. However, the popular press loved the idea that perhaps an explanation for vampires has finally come about, and many lay people today think that this is, in fact, the root cause of vampire legends. However, it's probably not. Love song for a vampire. That's a song by Annie Lennox written for the end titles to Francis Ford Coppola's excellent 1992 adaptation of Dracula. There's a fairly widespread global vampire subculture with many websites, organizations, and clubs devoted to catering to their particular needs. Within this community, there are several gradations, mainly divided into two broad arch categories, lifestyle vampires and real vampires. Lifestyle vampires are folks who really just dig vampires and put their toe or more into the waters of the mythology. They voluntarily enter into the vampire community. There are black swans. These are people who are into and accepting of vamp culture but have not yet taken the step of identifying as a vampire but, you know, might one day. Then there's fangdom. Fans of vampires, especially those from fiction, this is usually limited to cosplay and maybe having a sort of blood-themed beverage from time to time at a vampire bar. There are scholars, people who study vampire mythology. They do not say they are vampires themselves, but they are still part of the community. There are role players, LARPers with a vampy bent, big fans of the Vampire the Masquerade games, cosplayers who go to vampire clubs and conventions, not just in costume, but in character. <coughs> Lifestylers, or vampires, spelled with a Y instead of an I, these are people who take role-playing further to encompass their everyday lives as much as possible. This is the majority of people in the vampire community. And then there are the living vampires, people who go further into the being a vampire all the time thing, often adhering to some sort of philosophy about being a vampire in the modern world. They often consider themselves to be sort of modern-day alchemists, spending time and even money searching for the secret to immortality. But then you have people who claim to be real Vampires divided into those who think they need some sort of esoteric life energy in order to survive, and those who think they can only get that energy by drinking blood. Both groups say they have no choice in being a vampire, and some of them are quite bitter about being afflicted with this problem. First category is psychic vampires. These are folks who claim to have a sort of an energy deficiency, a permanent lack of chi or prana or whatever they want to call the life force. They need to feed this energy off of other people. Now, traditional psychic vampires are unaware of their condition, simply going through life being angry, depressed, insulting, ridiculously talkative, and basically behaving in ways that require that people pay a lot of attention to them, which then allows them to unconsciously feed off these people's life force. You know that you've been around one of them when you find yourself sort of befuddled and tired after interacting with them. These people are not technically part of the vampire community since they do not know that being an energy or psychic vampire is the root cause of all their problems and conflicts. Most real vampires, however, think that this is a psychological condition, though once in a while, a real or aware vampire will try and awaken one of these people in order to help them out. You also have ethical psychic vampires who are aware of their need for other people's life force and seek out donors who willingly donate their chi, black swans who don't mind being fed off of. And then you have the sanguines, people who identify as vampires and say that they actually need real human blood in order to live. Some sanguines consider themselves to be the only real vampires with all the lifestyle and psychic vampire people just being pretenders. Sanguines often claim to have porphyria, which they say makes them need blood, makes sunlight hurt them, and deforms their cartilage. And yes, they actually drink blood when they are able, which is risky because they can get bloodborne diseases. As such, they are disliked by many of the other people in the vampire community, even true believers who sure do seem to believe that, yes, vampires really do exist in some form or another, but these people who go around drinking blood are just too weird. And then you have hybrids. These are people who are going all in. They are sanguines, so they need human blood to survive. And they are also psychic vampires, so they need to feed off people's life force as well. On some forums, you can also find dark hints of the existence of dompiers, which result when a vampire and a human procreate. Apparently, male vampires can pass on their vampirism to their unborn children. In the community, there are fangsmiths who craft custom pointy teeth for both lifestyle and real vampires. And, of course, there's a brisk trade in clothing, like capes, obviously, and paraphernalia to decorate one's vamp den. In both types of communities, there's a complicated social system involving masters and elders and clans and the like, arcane-seeming rituals, and an ever-deepening mythology. As weird as all this sounds, there are clubs, festivals, support groups and much more that makes this a real-world community, connected and in a sense, thriving. Some vamp organizations sure seem to take it all pretty seriously, like the Vampire Research Center founded in 1972 and the Atlanta Vampire Alliance or AVA founded in 2005. Websites like VampireWebsite.net and the Vampirism Forum help foster the community and have many resources for people who suspect they might be into this scene. There are several websites out there that call themselves the Vampire Research Society, containing varying degrees of entertainment value. Some of them are aware that this is simply a lifestyle thing, and others seem to take it incredibly seriously and treat the existence of vampires as not only real, but an actual problem for those suffering from it. You can find links to all of these in the episode notes for people who are interested. But even people who claim they need human blood to survive do not attack people. There's a pretty strict no-biting rule at all levels of vampydom. If donors want to give their blood to a sanguine, they have to sign a consent form and show a health certificate as well. As for those who consume the blood, are they mentally ill, and this is the form their problem is taking, or are they just so deep into the game of vampire that they no longer care to differentiate between what is and is not objectively real? It is hard to say. One thing is for sure. There are way more people into this at some level or another than you would think. Some of them are just having a really good time, while others feel like they are part of a marginalized group, misunderstood, and much maligned. As author Anne Rice said, quote, the vampire is an outsider. He's the perfect metaphor for those things. He's someone who looks human and sounds human, but is not human, so he's always on the margins. Well, quite a lot of people in modern society feel exactly that way, so no surprise that the vampire community is attractive to them. And of course, if there are people who claim to be actual vampires out there, then there must also be vampire hunters. The Highgate Highgate Vampire incident. Incident On Halloween 1968, a bunch of young folks went to the Tottenham Park Cemetery in the north London borough of Edmonton to play at occult games in a scary environment. They took flowers from several graves and arranged them into circles and arrows pointing to a new grave which they had dug up and drove a wooden stake through the heart of the corpse inside the coffin. (laughs) Ha, 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 youthful hijinks, or maybe maybe not. not, not. In February 1970, British tobacconist and occultist David Ferrant wrote a letter to a Norwich newspaper claiming that on the previous Christmas Eve, he'd been going past Highgate Cemetery, also in North London, about seven miles southwest of Tottenham in Waterloo Park, when he'd seen what he called a gray figure hanging about on the grounds. He said that what he saw was not human but supernatural in nature. Farrant then followed up with more correspondence, claiming he'd found several dead foxes in the area. The newspaper published this, and about a week later, they got several letters from locals claiming that they'd seen ghosts and other apparitions in the cemetery and on Swain's Lane, which is nearby. Among these apparitions was a man in a top hat, a ghost on a bicycle, a white lady, a menacing face, the sounds of bells, and even whispers' voices. Sean Manchester, who said he was president of the British Occult Society, wrote them in March saying he knew for sure that the gray figure Farrant had seen was a vampire, in fact, maybe even the king of all vampires in Britain. Well, the tabloids took this narrative and ran with it. This is juicy stuff. Attracted by all of the attention, both men each told the press that they were going to hunt the infernal beast down and kill it. And thus, a rivalry was born as each one tried to become the preeminent vampire hunter of the 1970s in the eyes of the public. Manchester also claimed to be a Catholic bishop and said he would perform an exorcism of the graveyard on Friday the 13th. ITV interviewed a number of self-proclaimed experts on devil stuff and vampires, including Ferent and Manchester, and aired their special in the early evening of Friday the 13th. A mob of literally hundreds of people wanting to get in on the vampire action, armed with crucifixes and wooden stakes, descended on Highgate Cemetery, overwhelming police and surging over the gates and walls. Of course, no vampire was found, though several people claimed they had seen a tall, cloaked figure of a spectral nature fleeing into the darkness, seeming to float above the ground. (laughs) Again, keep in mind, this is 1970, not 1770. Well, nothing came of all this, and the press finally got bored and moved on to other things. But the intoxication of being in the public eye did not wane for either Manchester or Farrant. Manchester was still firmly fixed on the vampire narrative, but Fair branched out, musing that, you know, maybe it wasn't a vampire but some kind of other supernatural entity or maybe it was linked to black magic cults. Then in August, two schoolgirls were taking a shortcut through Highgate Cemetery when they came across a strange sight. Someone had dug up the hundred-year-old corpse of a woman, removed it from its coffin, cut its head off, and driven a wooden stake through its heart soon the police were getting phone calls again from people claiming they'd seen a mysterious figure in the area and one woman said a man in a black cloak with superhuman strength had thrown her to the ground. Well, Ferent saw an opportunity and started saying that things were vamping up, uh, ramping up once again and probably the only way to deal with this was to perform that exorcism that he hadn't performed before. So, on August 17th, Farrant and some buddies went to the spot where it all began and drew a large circle surrounded by mystical protective symbols and lines of salt and holy water. Inside this, they made another circle decorated with candles and incense where the demon they planned to summon would appear and be bound. But before they could start their chanting, the police showed up and arrested Ferent. However, he was released with a caution since he hadn't actually done much more than simply break into the cemetery. Fair and Manchester were now firmly fixed in the public imagination as experts on vampires and the like, and their animosity for one another just made the whole tale spicy. They took turns sniping at each other and finally agreed that they would have a magical duel on Parliament Hill and Hampstead Heath, not terribly far from Highgate Cemetery. People turned up in crowds to see who would be victorious, but the combatants never appeared. Later that year, police found a naked David Ferentz squatting over a plate filled with burning embers in an abandoned house. He explained he was just trying to get rid of ghosts who were haunting the ruin. He was arrested for public indecency and went to court, but the judge let him off telling him to just knock off this kind of a thing. However, apparently during the investigation, police had roughed up a friend of his during questioning, so Ferrant retaliated by sending threats to the officers and voodoo doll images of the officers with pins stuck in them. Sometime after this, a headless corpse was found in a parked car, and the police immediately thought it had been Ferrant up to his weird tricks again. But someone else said, no, 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 they are the ones who dug up a body and stuck it in a car because they thought it was funny. But the police thought that him sending these voodoo dolls plus there had been more damage to the cemetery, was enough to finally get Farrant, who was arrested, tried, and sentenced to four years. He copped to sending the dolls, but he said he had not done anything to the cemetery. After serving part of his four-year sentence, Farrant got right back into it when he was released. In 1978, he ran as the only candidate for what he called the Wicca Workers' Party on a platform of public nudity, free sex, and state-run brothels, outlawing communism in the country, and leaving the European Common Market. He also routinely fought with any occultists who said anything that contradicted something that he had said. Over time, Ferret would say that he did not think vampires were in fact real, at least not the blood-sucking kind. And yet, despite this, he started something called the Highgate Vampire Society, so who knows. In 2007, he made a comic book titled The Adventures of Bishop Bonkers, aimed squarely at Sean Manchester, his arch-rival. However, an Australian vampire hunter named Anthony Hogg, two Gs, thought one of the characters in the comic, named Cousin Hoggy, who is in fact a pig, was based on him and he complained about it. Manchester, who the comic is actually about, jumped into the fray, calling Australian Hog a useful idiot for playing interference attempts to remain in the spotlight, and even started a blog called Hog Watch, devoted to insulting the self-proclaimed vampire hunter. Sadly that blog has since been deleted. In 2012, Farrant tried to buy an area in the land of Kirklees Park Estate in North Yorkshire, long reputed to contain the grave of Robin Hood. Perhaps he chose this because Manchester had been born near Sherwood Forest in Nottinghamshire, and Farrant liked the connection. He said he performed numerous exorcisms there, and the place was a hotbed of supernatural activity. So, he wanted to turn it into a, quote, paranormal tourist attraction that would include a restaurant, IMAX Cinema, And golf course. During all of this time, Manchester also continued to promote himself, often referring to himself in the third person as an expert in vampy stuff. He trotted out a schoolgirl who exhibited two small punctures in her neck and showed signs of anemia after claiming to have seen a vampire on Swains Lane near the cemetery. He filled her room with vials of holy water and crosses and garlic, and the girl recovered. This was just one of several supposed cases he was involved with. In 1985, he wrote a book called The Highgate Vampire, which, despite his claim that it is all a true story, is pretty much a direct ripoff of Bram Stoker's Dracula, though there is a thrilling sequence in which he says he followed the vampire to its lair and saw it turn into a giant spider. Well, not to be outdone, Ferrant followed up in 1991 with his own account of events in the 1970s titled Beyond the Highgate Vampire. Again, keep in mind, both books were marketed as non-fiction. David's third wife, Della, also wrote a book called Haunted Highgate in 2013, claiming that it's not just about vampires, but the whole area is spooky, 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 spooky. spooky, spooky. In 2012, a man named Kevin Chesham put pictures up on his own blog of a room in Manchester's house filled with swastikas, Nazi flags, photos of Hitler, and much, much more. Manchester said on one of his many, many blogs that this Chessom guy had purposely misrepresented his, quote, historical militaria collecting hobby, and in fact, Chessom was the real Nazi showing, among other things, a picture of Chessum wearing a Templar Cross shirt giving the one-armed Nazi salute. Manchester also claimed to have uncovered a, quote, League of Imperial Fascists in North London, and Chesham was a member. And this, of course, is all why Chesham had targeted Manchester. Don't forget, Manchester said he was a bishop, though there is no paper trail on that, so he was probably lying. Manchester also said he was a direct descendant of Lord Byron, but he also said he was related to King Arthur, that he had once rescued a woman from an evil satanic cult and had some really great pictures to prove it, but of course those pictures were never forthcoming. He founded the British Occult Society and Ferrant responded by founding a group called the British Psychic and Occult Society. The two men loathed each other and their feud went on until Ferent died in April 2019. Manchester, uncharacteristically, made a very nice Facebook post about Ferentz's passing. Vampires will continue to haunt our collective imaginations because they are horrible and scary or because they are sexy and appealing. Scholars write about what vampires mean to us, are they deep-seated fears of the dark, are they about loss of control or longing for immortality at any cost, maybe a metaphor for hatred of immigrants or coded homophobia or somehow it's about drug addiction? The list goes on. Some more recent writers see the vampire as a symbol of transformation or as a reputation of biodeterminism. A few queer writers see in their strange, not-quite-human, not-quite-animal, not-quite-dead, not-quite-alive really quite alive dichotomy a powerful image that resonates with the state of mind many LGBTQ and trans people go through as they discover their true selves. There have been scholarly papers written on all of these musings and much, much more. Like all good symbols, vampires are a combination of elements and people can see what they want to in them. They're elegant or they're grungy. They're wealthy or they live in abject poverty. They embrace their condition or they see it as a curse. To once again quote Anne Rice, this time from her novel Queen of the Damned, none of us really changes over time. We only become more fully what we are. Thank you
1: for visiting. The conspiracy clearing house we're closing now but we'll open another crate in the next episode until then thank you for listening